Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 19th, 2020. Once again, we have our friend Toothwids here with us. It is Wednesday morning, December 16th, and we are going to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 19 of our discussion, and we are still in the middle, more or less, of point number 42, proof number 42, which is about major word mistranslations or word misunderstandings that occur repeatedly throughout the Bible. None of these by themselves explicitly prove the race of the Israelites, but understanding the true meanings of many biblical terms does help to prove that word meanings were obfuscated by the churches and by modern society so as to distort the many other evidences that the message of Christ and his apostles and prophets is solely intended for white Europeans. Truthfids, greetings, and thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Greetings, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me. Yes, so here we're on to the word Arab, and there's so much deception around that. And uh, most of our people don't even know that the word has a meaning, that, that it's not just a random word. And it's not just, um, you know, just the name of a nation or people like Saudi Arabia. And if people actually understood what the word Arab means, then it would be very clear that they are all essentially mixed bastards. And that that is why they're called Arabs. And that also many so-called people around us should also technically be classified as Arabs, even Jews, really. And um, the, the Jews really try to push that Arabs are a race, a, a legitimate branch of the Adamites, that essentially all Shemites looked like or were Arabs. And in, in reality, this is just a way to try and legitimize that the Jews are Israel, right? That they tried to go even further and say that all of the Middle East was always that way, that the Assyrians, Babylonians, uh, Syrians, Medes, all had this kind of brown skin and that uh, therefore the Israelites must also have looked that way. And then you even have the deception about the Mediterranean whites, like, you know, the Italians and, and you know, southern Italy, Spain, Greece, they tried to say that's just a branch of um, Caucasians. So there's a lot of deceptions all around this. And if people, we already explained the invasions of the Arabs, and that's why they turned brown. And if you understand the, where the Arabs came from, those locations were also invaded by Arabs. Then you begin to see the picture. And hopefully when we explain Arab, it all becomes much clearer that essentially they're called Arab because they're mixed. They grew dark, which means they must have originally been white, which means the whole area must have originally been white. And therefore, the Israelites must have been white. Right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. The Arabization of the entire Mediterranean. I, I mean, there were probably Canaanites sprinkled throughout the Mediterranean in the very earliest times. But even those Canaanites were apparently white. It, it was difficult for the apostles themselves to, to tell the difference between Judahites and Edomites, between the true people of Judah 
and, and the Edomians who were converted, forcibly converted into Judaism. So with the whole world apparently white, there were already wheat and tares together in, in diverse places throughout the Near East and, and Middle East and, and Mediterranean Basin. But when the Arab people began importing slaves from sub-Saharan Africa, that's when they really began to grow dark. To, to and, and they were already mixed. And, and that may have been evident to an extent in early times, but once they started bringing in Nubians and sub-Saharan Africans in large numbers as slaves and, and eventually converting them to Islam, and this happened all throughout the Islamic period, that then they became darker and darker and darker people. And, and that's hard to understand unless one truly understands classical history and, and the original nature of the people, peoples of the Mediterranean basin and, and the Middle East and Near East. So that this Egypt today, Egypt and Arabia were separate entities all throughout the classical period, all throughout the um, Greek and Roman histories, and all throughout the Bible. Egypt and Arabia are, are separate entities that aren't related one to another. But Egypt today is officially, and this is right on Wikipedia, look up Egypt on Wikipedia, the official name of Egypt is the Arab Republic of Egypt. So how did Egypt become Arabian? Well, well that happened with the rise of Islam and, and the Islamic conquest of Egypt. And, and Egypt was already mixed at that time, but it, it wasn't Negro. It, it, we... we um, to, to the extent that it is today, there were mixed, there were Macedonian Greeks who were separate from the original Egyptians that they conquered when they inhabited Egypt in the time of the Ptolemies. So there was a, a large white element in Egypt and in Roman Egypt that was really Greek. And, and then a lot of them were Romans. So how did they become Arabs? They became Arab with the Islamic conquests because they were still light in the time of the Byzantines in, in the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries AD. That's just one historical example. Why is Egypt the Arab Republic of Egypt? That's why. Because the people are Arabs and they're mixed. And Arab, as we will see, means mixed. In, in our last presentation of the series, we discussed the various terms for man which are Adam and Enosh. And there's a third term-ish, which doesn't really have a racial distinction and which we didn't get into. But the difference between Adam and Enosh is significant. And we found that Adam is a racial designation describing a single race, men of a single race. But that Enosh is the general term for man in the sense of a mortal hominid. Then we examined the words for bastard and found that bastard is also a racial designation 
but describes someone who is not of an authentic race. Now we shall discuss this other misunderstood term, which is also a racial designation similar to bastard, but from a different perspective, and that is the term Arab. An Arab is also a bastard. The term Arab in Strong's Hebrew lexicon is found at numbers 6151 and 6154. Strong defines Ereb, number 6154, as being from another word, 6148, and it means the web or transverse threads of cloth. Now, that's true, but only because it's also a mixture or mongrel race, and, and that's part of the definition. And he goes on to describe how it was translated in the King James Version as Arabia or as mingled in phrases such as mingled people and mixed in mixed multitude, which appears twice in Scripture, or of threads of cloth as a woof. Strong's defines Arab, number 6151, as a verb to commingle, and explains that the King James Version translated that word as mingle and mix. The root of this verb is given in Strong's, as it is given in Strong's, is also a verb, Arab, and is lifted, listed at 6150, which is defined as a primitive root rather identical with 6148 through the idea of covering with a texture, meaning, <clears throat> meaning to grow dusky at sundown. And it is translated in the King James Version as to be darkened or to be evening in the sense of the day becoming darkened. So we have 6151, 6154 mean mixture or, or to mingle, and, and then we have 6150, which means to grow dark. And it's identical with 6148, and 6148 is the root of those other words. Well, Strong's lexicon is quite concise, and, and he when he encountered a word, separated it, just like the rabbis separated words. They use vowel points to separate words, to distinguish them in their meaning. Strong's used these numbers to identify those distinct words because they're separated by their parts of speech. So where you have 6151, 6154, 6150, 6148, they're really all the same word, spelled with the same Hebrew letters, but different vowel points because the rabbis attempted to distinguish them by their strong parts of speech, and the Strong's numbers represent the word in its each of its different parts of speech, the noun, the verb, whether it's an adjective, whether it's a proper name. So that's how Strong sought to organize his lexicon.
in Jesenius's Hebrew Chaldee lexicon, under number 6154, one is directed to see the root under numbers 6148 and 49. So there, in, in the first definition of the word, Arab, it means to mingle oneself and then to intermingle. And then Jesenius has to enter into marriage, citing Ezra chapter 9, verse 2. Now, that's not entirely honest, and I will explain why. But in Jesenius's under number 6151, Arab, it says to mingle or to mix, and it cites as an example its use in Daniel chapter 2, verse 43. They will mingle themselves with the seed of Enosh, as we cited just last week, speaking about Enosh and the differences between Enosh and Adam. So this explanation, which I've just read, I modified from an old paper by Clifton Emmerheiser, which I critiqued a few years ago. And when I critiqued the paper, I noted that Clifton may not have noticed it, but where Jesenius defines the verb Ereb in part as being to enter into marriage, and he's citing Ezra chapter 9, verse 2, he's being deceptive. Whether or not his deception was purposeful, the only time this word Ereb is used in relation to marriage is where it is used in relation to a mingled marriage, to the marriage of Israelites with those of other races, which is the context of Ezra chapter 9, verse 2. So this word, Ereb, and related words are also translated as mingled in Scripture, referring to people of diverse tribes in Psalm 106, verse 35. In Jeremiah, and, and I'll have the verse numbers in the notes, but Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 50, Ezekiel chapter 30, and as we cited in Daniel chapter 2. Most notably, it is also the mixed multitude, the word mixed in the phrase mixed multitude in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, and in, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3, where it says, now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. So this is the word Arab in every one of these cases where it's talking about mixtures of various tribes of people, of different tribes of people. <clears throat> so, so Bill, in the um, original Hebrew, there, there would be no vowel points. It, it would all just be the same word, right? You right. just need to have a knowledge of Hebrew and understand the context to know the meaning, right? Yes, you would. If you knew Hebrew and understood the context as you were reading, you would know the part of speech, whether it was an adjective modifying a noun or whether it was standing as a noun itself. Yes, you would naturally know that, just like we naturally know it in English. When I speak to you a sentence in English, you don't have to go look up the part of speech of every word. So I could use the, the I'm going to the John. You know that I'm going to the bathroom. So in that case, John is a common noun for a bathroom. I'm sorry, in England, you call it a loo, right? <laughs> 
or, or maybe <laughs> yeah, yeah, or the toilet, yeah, right. So, so it's the John in in, in American slang, in, in slang vernacular. So it's the John. So in that case, we know that John is not a proper noun; that that it's only a common noun, and it it's a synonym for toilet. So if we were writing an English lexicon in that's going to be used for a concordance, right? Because in the concordance, if you notice in Strong's concordance, he separates the, the like Adam from where it's a proper name and man where it's a common noun, just like the name John and the word John. He separates them by different numbers, and in his lexicon, he defines those numbers differently, where Adam is, is a man, and then with a small a, Adam, it refers to his race and, and each one of his descendants, the race of Adam, the sons of Adam, and Adam is a descendant of capital A, Adam, in, in the Bible, and that's very clear in Scripture in the Old Testament. So that's how Strong's organized his lexicon with those different numbers, just to separate the parts of speech. But in everyday English, we see the context. I'm going to the John. You know I'm not going to see a person named John. You know that I'm simply going to the toilet. And that's just an example, but it works with many other words also. Okay, I'm sorry for that digression. <laughs> but it's, it, it's necessary for people to understand how the the, the lexicon in, in these Bible lexicons are arranged because the words, even though they're separated by parts of speech, they're really the same word. And because they're really the same word, they really have the same meanings, even if one's a verb and one's an adjective. The meaning, the, the essential meaning of the word is the same. Okay. The new brown driver Briggs version of the Jesenius Hebrew and English lexicon defines number 6154, Ereb, as a mixture, mixed company, a heterogeneous body, meaning people of a different race, people of different races in the same place. It is what that means. So, in Ezra chapter 9, where we have a reference to the mixed multitude, as individuals, none of those people were called Arabs. They were Canaanites, or they were Samaritans, or, or they were Moabites, or they were Edomites, or they were Israelites. If you actually read Ezra and read the context, you'll see that. So none of these individuals were from a race or nation identified as Arab, but they were an Arab multitude because they, it, it was a, a multitude of people that were of all different races, of all different nations, of all different tribes. So that's how they were described. And that's what an Arab is. He's not from a single race. He's mixed. He's a bastard by the definition of the word bastard. It's just a euphemism for bastard. So according to that new Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, an Arab is a hetero or, or a mixture or mixed company or a heterogeneous body, 
meaning from people of different races. A heterogeneous body attached to a people. And that's how it's used in scripture when people of diverse nations are found together with the Israelites. They were identified as Arabs or, or as Arab because that they weren't of a common nation, that they were all different races. So we have that meaning, and they cite six or eight examples, and they're all the same examples we have just cited from Exodus 12, Nehemiah 13, um, those passages, the same passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 2, we read, For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed, referring to the children of Israel, have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yeah, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. So, Ereb in that context doesn't mean to marry, as Jersenius claimed. It means to race mix. They have mingled that word Ereb themselves. That word Ereb is a verb in that instance, rather than an adjective or a noun. So it would be assigned the Strong's number, which was attached to the verb definition in the lexicon. And that's Ereb, number 6154. But it's the same word as Arab number 6151. It's just So it could form. mean to race mix, to, like as a verb. That might actually be a easier um, translation for people to understand than mingled. Right. Would that be correct? Yes, it means to race mix. They have mingled themselves. That's one meaning of the verb, to race mix, to mix your race, because that's how it's used in that passage and others. The word Arabia, let's talk about the word Arabia. It first appears in Scripture in Genesis. No, it first appears in Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 15. So that's rather late in the biblical narrative. And we read, besides that, he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. Now, first Kings chapter 10, we're talking about the life of King Solomon and, and his rule over Israel. There, the word for Arabia is Strong's number 6153. Ereb, it's the same word. Now, the mainstream denominational Bible commentators, right? Because the word can mean to grow dark, people imagine that Arab has that meaning because the sun set in the west. So the east grew dark first. But that is not true. Babylon was directly east. If you draw a line, look on Google Earth or on any Google Maps and draw a line from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon was directly east of Jerusalem, but it was not said to be in Arabia. And most of the lands identified in Scripture as being in Arabia 
were to the south of Judah. They were not to the east. Furthermore, if it were true that that's why it was called Arabia, because it grew dark, then perhaps the phrase mixed multitude in Exodus chapter 12 or in Nehemiah chapter 13, for examples, should have been interpreted as dark horde or dark multitude. And the effect is the same. If it's talking about darkness because the land is dark, where it's talking about people, it would have to be talking about dark people. So the effect is the same. But the truth is that Arabia was not called Arabia for that reason, because it was mostly to the south, where, where people were identified as Arabians, and not to the east. For other examples, we read in Isaiah chapter 21, the burden upon Arabia in the forest, because the land was at, at one time more fertile, in the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim. Now, Dedanim means people of Dedan, D-E-D-A-N. It, it refers to a city in the land of Edomia, which was to the south, in Arabia, which was to the south. The inhabitants of the land of Timah brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. That's Isaiah 21. Now, Ezekiel chapter 27. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar, they occupied with thee in lambs and rams and goats. These are the, this is the merchandise that the people of the cities which are identified in Arabia, which they supply to the city of Tyre in, in trade with them, right? In these were thy merchants. Yet, where we see these places that are mentioned as, and associated with Arabia, Dedan and Tamar and Kedar were all far south of Jerusalem and perhaps only slightly to the east. They were only slightly east, but they were far south of Jerusalem. They were not in the land of the sunset. Rather, Jeremiah helps us understand the meaning for the term Arabia, where we read in the King James Version of Jeremiah chapter 25, a warning which is uttered in part to Dedan and Tima and Buzz and all that are in the outmost corners, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mingled people, the Arab people that dwell in the desert. And these are parallelisms. The people addressed in these places are the mingled people of the deserts to the south and east. Since the word for Arabia is Strong's number 6152, Arab. And the word for mingled is Strong's number 6153, Arab. They are both actually forms of the same word, and therefore they have the same meaning. Yeah, so once again, you can see if they just kept those, um, the Hebrew word, it would be a lot clearer rather than constantly changing 
people don't even realize that mingled is Arab actually there, right? Right. And it should be Arabized. How about that? Because it's a past participle, it's a verb that's a past participle, I believe, in, in that verse. It, it should be Arabized people. How about that? Then we'd wonder if, if you're going to trans, translate Arab as Arabia, it, it should be how about all the kings of the mixed places instead of all the kings of Arabia? The word Arab and the word Arab are spelled exactly the same, and, and they're essentially the same Hebrew word, but the numbers distinguish two different parts of speech. One's a noun, and one's a verb. So, so it, if I say, I love running, running in that sense in English is a gerund. It's a verb used as a participle that's a gerund, and, and it stands as a noun in that verb. Runners. I love runners. Okay, runner, it is a noun, but it's formed from a verb. It's, it's to run. So, I love to run. That, that's, a verb is a run, but, but there it's basically a, an affinity an infinitive, and it's still the object of, of the verb love. So it stands as a noun. It, it's different parts of speech, but they each have the same meaning. A runner is someone who runs, and running is the act of, of being a runner. And to run is the act of running. So, so it's different parts of speech, but that doesn't mean that the words have different meanings. They all have the same meaning. They're all associated with the same action. That's just one example in English, and, and there could be many others, countless others. It's the same thing with Arab and Arab, that they're the same word in different parts of speech. So they should have done what you did with running, really. Uh, that, that's what you mean, right? Well, well, if they wanted to be precise and not lose any of the meaning of the, the essential meaning of the original term, then wanting to be precise, it's very difficult to do as a translator, right? That because if Ereb, the verb, is going to be consistently translated as mixed or mingled, when we write Arabia in English, then we, we disassociate or we leave open the possibility of disassociating the noun Arabia with the fact that, that it, its meaning is mixed or mingled. We lose the association in our language and people are not taught this association today. So we've lost it. It, if, it. I don't care if you ask a thousand college graduates, and, and probably many of them could be seminary students, what the word Arabia really means, they'll be lost. They won't be able to tell you. Oh, it, it describes the, the Arab people that live in the Middle East. That's what they'll say. They won't know the meaning of the word beyond that. I guarantee it. They won't know. 
they might be able to say, oh, some of them might be able to say, oh, that's the land that, that grew, da grew dark at the end of the day, in the evening. They might be able to say that, but that's not why it was called Arabia. Because these places identified as Arabia in these scriptures are all in the south. So the sun doesn't set in, in, in the north for the south to grow dark. So, so why are these places in the far south, why are they considered Arabia? There must be another reason. And the prophets answer the reason where they put the word Arabia, the noun describing where these people are, right together with the word Arab, which means mingled and associated with people. That word Arab meaning mingle, being attached to that noun for people. So it's really acting as an adjective in that case. It's modifying that noun for people. And all the Arabian people would be dishonest because it's not. It's talking about mingled people. The fact that the King James translators translated it as mingled people proves that they understood <clears throat> that those Arabs were mingled people, but they chose to, wrote, to write Arabia in order to describe the land, the land itself. Okay. I'm glancing over the Hebrew real quick because I have another point, but I can't really, I can't really come out, come up with it yet. I'm sorry. In the days of Solomon, the people of the countries of Arabia and the land south of Judah were called by their tribal identification, whether they were Amorites or Midianites or Ishmaelites or Edomites or Nabataeans or Sabians or any of the other people who had inhabited that region. So, in the days of Solomon, where we first see that word, Arabia, describing the land, they started to become known simply as Arabs, as mingled peoples, ostensibly because over the centuries, they all became mingled with one another, regardless of whether they were also mingled with Canaanites or even with other races, such as Nubians. So an Arab is someone who is mixed. Then, much later, 300 years after Solomon, we read in another context where Ezekiel is speaking of mixed tribes, and in Ezekiel chapter 30, we read of Ethiopia and Libya and Lydia and all the mingled people, and there's that word Ereb once again, and Chub, and the men of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. The word for mingled there is also Ereb or Arab, but it speaks of mixed people in Africa rather than in Arabia. At that time, Nubians had been invading Ethiopia and Egypt. From that time, that is, or, or I'm sorry, it was just before that time, in the time of Isaiah, that Nubians had invaded Ethiopia and Egypt, and, and it, it would be natural for Ezekiel at the near the end of that time, near the end of the period of the black pharaohs of Egypt, 
which was from the middle of the 8th century down to the beginning of the 7th century BC, that's when Ezekiel was writing. That's where he referred to all the mingled people <clears throat> in Ethiopia and, and these other places in Africa, Ethiopia and Libya. So, later in the prophets, perhaps 60 or 70 years later, in Zechariah chapter 9, we read a punishment which was announced against the Philistines. And it says, And the bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, one of the chief cities of the Philistines. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. So who has dwelt at Ashdod for at least the last 1,500 years, if not Arab bastards? Arabs who are called by that name because their race was mixed. That's who's lived there. So a bastard lives at Ashdod as the word of Yahweh, the word of God says in Zechariah chapter 9, when we look at Ashdod today and see who lives there, who lives there? Arabs. There's another word in Hebrew that can refer to people who are mixed, and that is Belial. But first, where Belial appears in the Old Testament, it is usually capitalized and left untranslated. The Hebrew definition is found at Strong's number 1100. Belial. It's actually a two-part word. And it is defined in part as from two other words, 1097 and 3276. And it means without profit or worthless. And by extension, it means destruction or wickedness. Now, the word found at 1097, belie, is properly failure, nothing, destruction. But another word, belial, B-E-L-I-Y-L, is found at 1098 in Strong's Hebrew lexicon, and it is defined as being from 1101, another related word, and it means mixed, specifically referring to feed for cattle in, in at least one, one usage of the term. So I would contend that while Belial is generally worthless, <clears throat> it can also refer to something mixed because something which was mixed was considered worthless. It says in the law in Leviticus that thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy seed, thy field, with mingled seed. And these were prohibitions against the mixing of both cattle and plants. Well, there were also prohibitions against the mixing of people. Since mingled seed could not be used in planting, it was worthless. Therefore, we see in the definition for Babel, in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, Babel or Babylon. These words are also related to this concept expressed by Belial. And Babel or Babylon equal, this is Brown Driver's Briggs, Babel or Babylon equal confusion by mixing. It's no mistake that as races are being mixed all around us today, the Bible warns us that in the time of the end, Mystery Babylon would ultimately fall, 
we are having right now, today, confusion by mixing. The mixing we are seeing in society is confusion. It is mystery Babylon. It's a mystery because too many people are too blind to understand their Bibles. Bill, is um, Belilah not related to the devil, uh, Satan, in some way? Didn't uh, Yahshua use, say that to the Jews? He, he, didn't he say Belilah at some point? Well, well, it's certainly in Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus certainly made the equation in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There's, a, there's another um, there's another term. There's an alternate spelling of Belial. It's Belier, but it doesn't appear in the King James Version. I don't think Christ himself used the term. I think in well, the, Was it Lord of the Flies? Or, sorry, well, I'm just getting these, this memory. That's Baal Zebub. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Baal Zebub. Baal means Lord. Baal is a different word than Belial with a different etymology. It, it means Lord. And Baal Zebub means Lord of Dung. Or Baal Zebul means Lord of the Flies. I may have those two confused. It might be the other way around. It's been a while. So Beelzebub, and there's an alternate spelling, Beelzebul, and one of them means Lord of Dung, and one of them means Lord of the Flies. But if you look at the behavior of flies, it, it's there's not much difference in the meaning, right? <laughs> now, yeah. now, I'm going to repeat some of the entries when Clifton had made his own paper on the meaning of the terms Arab and Arabia, I'm going to present some of the entries which Clifton cited from Collier's Encyclopedia, which is a rather mainstream source. And it, it elucidates the meaning of this term. <clears throat> from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume two, page 398. And, and this is here on my shelf now, here in my living room. Under the topic Arabs, we read the following. The people of the Arab world have no single origin. Although Arab culture was associated in early times with the Arabian Peninsula, over the centuries, many different peoples have become Arabized through adoption of the Arabic language and other features of Arab culture. Now, the Arabic language was originally a takeoff from Aramaic, and Aramaic was the lingua franca, the common language of trade and diplomacy in both the Babylonian and the Persian empires. And Aramaic, even with the coming of the Greeks, Aramaic was still the predominant language of the East because the Parthians used Aramaic. And, 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 and the Parthians were, were the dominant tribe of the East throughout the entire Roman period. So Arabic is just a bastardized language, right? Yes, Arabic is a bastardized language, a bastardized form of Aramaic, and the development of its alphabet went off in a different direction from, from the Phoenician characters, the original Hebrew characters that, that became predominant in the West.
which so, is, so just like today when you hear a nigger <clears throat> trying to speak English, that, that that's basically what happened. Well, well, yeah, sort of a Mexican trying to speak Spanish, and and that there's a world of difference between them. A, 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 um, a Cajun trying to speak French would be both basically the same way, or, or a Creole, I should say, or, or a Haitian even trying to speak French, right? It, it's all a bastardized. When another race adopts your language, it, it, it always goes in a different direction. Always. So we see that Colliers acknowledges that the people of the Arab world have no single origin. And they're speaking of a time somewhat later than the scripture, but the truth is that even in the days of Solomon, the people of Arabia, when it's first named in that manner, have no single origin. That they were Amorites, or they were Midianites, or or they were from Havilah, one of the descendants of Abraham with Keturah, or they were from the sons of Joktan, or, or Sheba, or, or many of those other places that were all at one time distinct tribes that generally inhabited certain places in the land that later became known as Arabia. They all mixed to- together, they all mingled together with themselves and others, and, and that's the result that they have no single origin. They're all bastards. So, so we, we, I'm going to continue this citation of Collier's for nearly all Arabization. And, and I would agree with that generally because at the beginning, even the Canaanites what were apparently white, right? The Kenites, the Canaanites, even though in, in the scriptures, they are rejected people and they were kept as separate as, as humanly possible, let's put it that way, that they were apparently white and, and the Edomites and, and all the other people, the Midianites and all these other peoples that later became known as Arabs were all apparently white. And when Islam, that this Mohammedan religion which was actually contrived by Jews, came to dominate these Arab people, that then the mixing, the race mixing with outside races accelerated. And and the Arabs were trading at the time. They weren't contained to the Middle East or, or, or Arabia or the Near East or, or even the lands that they conquered from there, Mesopotamia and and the like, they weren't contained there. The the before the Spanish and the English came to the South Pacific, there were already Islam was already as far as Malaysia and perhaps even the, the Philippines. They had already spread throughout all of Southeast Asia. Arab traders were taking their ships along the coasts and, and going to India. And, and Southeast Asia and, and Malaysia and, and those areas for, for a thousand years before the English. So and, Islam um, one spread. of their laws is you're not allowed to, um, you, you know, there, there's no um, prejudice against races, right? Anyone's right. allowed to mix. You're not allowed to be racist according to their laws. Absolutely. And, and we'll get to that, too. It, it's um, Clifton has a citation that discusses that a little later on. 
this um, for nearly all Arabization, this entry in Colliers, was through Islam, the major religion of the Arab world. The Arabs are as diverse physically as they are in ethnic origin. There is no racial Arab racial type. Some Arabs do fit the stereotypical picture, lean and hawk-nosed, with darkish skin and black hair. But these features are in no sense typical. Negroid Arabs are similar in appearance to sub-Saharan Africans, and light-skinned Arabs are physically indistinguishable from most Europeans. And, and of course, that I would contend with. Here I must note that most of the Arab world was originally white, as 2,000 years ago, even the Canaanites and Edomites were apparently white. But through Islam and the slave trade, which has been ongoing for centuries longer than most people in the West may ever perceive, Arabs freely interbred with Negroes and other races, and over that time, that has produced many Negroid Arabs and many others who are one variety of dark or another. Now Clifton cites another article from the same source, from volume 13, page 310, under the topic Islam. And we read, the term Islam refers not only to the religion, but also to the entire body of believers and the countries they live in. Among the predominantly Muslim nations of the modern world are Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Mauritania, Chad, Egypt, the Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the other states of the Arabian Peninsula. Turkey, Albania, Iran, Albania is in the Balkans, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And they are historically Arab because Arabs were trading and, and settling in those places long before the English and the Spanish ever got there. Large Muslim communities exist in Lebanon, Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union, China, India, and the Philippines. There is hardly a region that does not have a Muslim community. The youngest of the world's great religions, which I think is laughable because Islam is just Judaism for the goyim that aren't Jews. That's all it is. Islam developed in Arabia in an area that was one of the most significant melting pots revealed by history. And the great religious enthusiasm of the peoples living there was thereby diffused and given a universal character. And there we have it. And Clifton only wants to stress that the, the fact that ancient Arabia was a melting pot, just like the Jews are trying to do to America today, the same Jews did it, the Canaanites and the Edomites did it, in the land that became known as Arabia, even before the days of Solomon. It's the same pattern over and over again in history. So yeah, they was in. Uh, sorry, they was encouraged into marriage, and they we see that with uh, Jacob's sons right there as well. Absolutely, it's expressed by the Canaanites in 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 the earliest chapters of Genesis.
why don't you take our daughters for your sons and, and take our sons for your daughters and we'll live peaceably and, and be able to have trade and, and mercantilism in, in peace. That is the Jewish plan for the world, to mix it all up so that we could all be peaceful and, and love each other because we'll all be a bunch of brown bastards in the end. That's the ultimate result. And, and that's a pattern that's apparent in, in our Hebrew Bibles right from the beginning. So Clifton wanted to cite that article to stress the fact that ancient Arabia was a melting pot. And that this is commonly acknowledged even by mainstream academic sources such as Collier's Encyclopedia. So from the same article under the topic Islam in volume 13 of that encyclopedia, under the subtopic central beliefs, of which there are five that are termed affirmations, they're called, right? They're central to basic Muslim doctrine. The fifth affirmation, Clifton informs us that the fifth affirmation is of utmost interest to us here and reads as follows on page 311. Fifth, the community of believers includes all who reverence Allah, his prophet, book, and the day of judgment. This is the celebrated Brotherhood of Islam in which all barriers of race, color, tongue, which is language, and status are broken. All barriers of race, color, language, and status are broken. So once we realize that all of the Arabs are mixed, and that is why they are called Arabs, and once we realize that they are all mixed with the ancient Edomites and Canaanites, we can understand why all of these people are so despised in the scriptures and why the apostles never attempted to bring them the gospel of Christ in spite of the fact that even Paul of Tarsus went into Arabia for a time after his conversion on the road to Damascus. With all of the surrounding nations becoming mingled in this manner, even by the time of Solomon, we must also realize why it was so important for the children of Israel to remain separate from them, and that is the essence of the demands by God that they be holy. That is the point of the next portion of our discussion. We're going to discuss that word holy, that holy is separated and saint refers to someone who is separated, but the separating is from God and not from men. <clears throat> I don't know if you have any anything to add to that. Yeah, yeah, holy protects us from turning into these Arab bastards, right? That's the whole right. point. Absolutely. It, well, we were told to marry people of our own tribe, not to commit fornication, which is race mixing. Not, not to adulterate our blood, which is race mixing. We, we were instructed that. We were instructed that as Christians in the New Testament. Paul of Tarsus, the Apostle Jude, the Revelation, 
all met the, the apostles in Acts chapter 15 all make stern warnings against fornication. And, and that includes prostitution, but prostitution has always been an aspect or a facet of race mixing. Sex for money. That, that's why the ancient Israelites in the prophet Ezekiel are pictured that they are depicted as a woman laying down and spreading her legs for everyone that passes by because the ancient Israelites were engaged in trade with all these peoples that they were told to stay separate from, not to make covenants with. And a trade, an, an act of trade is really a covenant. When I trade with you for something, it's a, it's a small covenant, right? It's an agreement to take some goods in exchange for something else. So they weren't even supposed to trade with these people, but they did. And trading with people leads to intermarriage with them. And, and it leads to exchanges of, of populations with them. And, and that's apparent everywhere in the world today. It's inevitable. <clears throat> when, when you trade with China, the Chinese are going to send agents over here and put them in all the ports to monitor trade with China, and we're going to do the same, and, and there's going to be back and forth, and then there's going to start to be race mixing and cultural exchanges, and, and the society is ruined. And that's all inevitable. Okay, that's another digression. If, if we look in, um, in, in Scripture the children of Israel are actually condemned for that very thing. It, it's in Hosea, in, in Hosea chapter 2, and she shall follow after her lovers. Speaking of the children of Israel collectively, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say... I will go and return to my first husband, for then was better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. In other words, they took their goods and they traded it with the Canaanites who worshipped Baal. And, and therefore will I return and take away my corn and my wine, and, and my wool, and my flax, given to her to cover her nakedness. So, so it's all about trade. The punishment of ancient Israel was because they engaged in trade with these nations that they were supposed to remain separate from, and engaging with trade with them, they began to worship their gods and, and intermarry with them, and that's why they were punished. So when we look at Mystery Babylon, and we'll talk about Mystery Babylon again at the end of this presentation this evening, when we talk about Mystery Babylon, when we see it, if you read Revelation chapters 18 and 19, the concept of Mystery Babylon is directly associated with global trade. It's the same punishment for the same phenomenon. It never ends. We were supposed to push those people out of the way and not trade with them because when you trade with people, even if the exchanges are even, you're still enriching those other people. 
and you're enabling them to do things and to have things that they wouldn't otherwise have. I'm sorry about that digression, but I think it has to be spelled out. So here we are going to discuss the actual meaning of the words translated in the Old Testament as holy, saint, sacred, sanctified. These have become religious terms today. They've been watered down to mean something different than what they had actually originally meant. In reality, something which is holy is something that has been sanctified by God according to his will, not by the will of man. Not necessarily according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. And we have already illustrated that difference in the meanings of the Greek words, hosius and dikahius. As we have said, what is hosius is what has been decreed by God to be just or righteous. And that word sometimes translated as holy in the New Testament. And what is dikahius is what is decreed or acknowledged by man to be just or righteous. So they're two important, that, that's an important distinction between the meanings of those two words. The two words have similar meanings, but they are not mere synonyms, as Paul had used them both consecutively, Hosius and Dikahius, in Titus chapter 1, verse 8 in reference to two different concepts. What is decreed just by God and what is decreed just by man? While in the King James Version of the New Testament, Dikaius is usually just or righteous, Hos and Hosius is often holy. Here we will discuss another term which is often translated as holy, which is Hagius. Hagius is, is the, the, the word which clo more, most closely corresponds with holy or sanctified or saint. And it's translated in that manner throughout the New Testament, sometimes as saint, sometimes as sanctified, sometimes as holy. Before we do that, though, we will first discuss these terms in the Old Testament. I don't know if you have anything. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, I didn't actually. It's <laughs> okay. It's okay. One Hebrew word often translated as holy or sacred is kodesh. It's Strong's number 6944. And that is defined in the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon as apartness, holiness, sacredness, separateness, and in those aspects, apartness, sacredness, or holiness of God, or of places, or of things, set apartness, or separateness. To set something apart, it becomes kodesh, or holy when you set it apart from other things. A related word which is used to refer to people is kadash, Strong's Hebrew number 6918, which is defined as sacred, holy, holy one, saint, set apart. 
But Kodesh, that first word, is also translated as saints. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, it is translated as saints, referring to the general children of Israel, the set-apart people. The related verb, Kadash, and, and these are all similar except for the vowels. The vowels is the way we distinguish one from another when we write it in English rather than in Hebrew. And they're all spelled the same in Hebrew except for those little vowel points that the rabbis added. They're all the same word except for the vowel points that the rabbis had added, right? So, Kadash, Strong's number 6942, the third word in this group, is the verb, and it's defined as to consecrate or to sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate, to be hallowed, to be holy. When you prepare it, you're preparing it for consecration, or you're dedicating it to a God. You're dedicating it for sanctification, to be hallowed, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be separate, to be set apart to be consecrated. They're the same thing. To be hallowed, to be consecrated or tabooed, to be set apart because something's cursed. To show oneself to be sacred or majestic, they write. This is Brown Driver Briggs. To be honored, to be treated as sacred, to be holy, to be set apart as sacred, consecrated, dedicated. It's the same thing over and over again in respect to different objects or in respect to things or people or in respect to, to different contexts. It still means basically the same thing, to be set apart and, and to be separate, to regard or treat as sacred or hollow, to keep oneself apart or separate, to cause himself to be hollowed, where it's used of God. To be observed as holy, meaning as consecrated to God, which could be of a day or of a feast, the time of a feast, of a whole week. Strong considered this verb to be the primitive root, and the other words in this group, 6918 and 6944, to have been derived from this verb, Kadash 6942. Now, the last definition in Brown Drivers Briggs, to consecrate oneself, does not necessarily mean that simply anyone can claim to be devoting themselves to God and expect to be accepted by him. Rather, Yahweh God chose the children of Israel, but they did not choose God. What is holy to Yahweh is not what men determined to be holy, but what the word of God informs us is holy. That's what's holy to God. What is important to God <clears throat> is what is expressed in the concept of hosius, which is what is righteous in the eyes of God. But what is merely dekahius, what is righteous in the eyes of men, we cannot necessarily expect God to accept unless men conform themselves to God. And um, this is our greatest argument on being a separate people, right? Separating from the other races. When people ask why, we can go straight to this. 
and say we are meant God, Yahweh commands us to be a separate holy people. Right. So that we can please God. And we cannot please our God without that, as we were commanded. The word saint or saints. Now, now Catholics think that a pope can make a saint. A pope can't make a saint. A saint can only come out of the loins of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, because that's the holy seed. <laughs> it's that simple. The words, and, and we'll prove that this evening, the word saint or saints appears 100 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Now, 39 of those are in the Old Testament, and 61 are in the New Testament. Now, here's more confusion. One time in the Old Testament, it's inferred, so it's really only in there 99 times. It's in italics in one of the Psalms, I think. And, and on 19 occasions in the Old Testament, it's translated from another word. That other word is chakid, chakid, C-H-A-C-I-Y-D. And I would pronounce the C as a hard C, not as a soft C. Chakid, Strong's number 2623, is faithful, kind, godly, holy, saint, pious. And, and that describes a behavior. But that's not the word that, that's more often translated as saint or saints or separate or apart or sanctified. On 19 other occasions, the word translated as saint or saints in the Old Testament is from the word kadash or kadesh or kodesh, those three words that I had just defined. Um, 69, 18, 69, 42, and 69, 44. Or a presumably Aramaic variant spelling found in Daniel, which is Kadish, Strong's number 69, 22. But it's the, still the same word. The verb Kadash is sanctified ones, which is saints in Isaiah 13, 3. And it is translated in similar ways elsewhere. But it always refers to all or a portion of the children of Israel in every context where it is used. The announcement that the children of Israel would be a Kadash Goy or a holy nation is first found in Exodus chapter 19, where we read in from verse 5, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, meaning a, a servant nation, and a holy nation, Kadash Goy, a nation of saints, basically, or a saintly nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, Yahweh God speaking to Moses to tell him, telling him to transmit this message to the people. In Leviticus chapter 19, Yahweh God had demanded the children of Israel to be holy, as he is also holy, where we read, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel. And say unto them, ye shall be holy, Kadash once again, for I, Yahweh your God, 
am holy. Then again, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we read, Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. And then in verse 2, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. And in each one of those examples, the word holy is once again kadash, that same word which is often translated as saints throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But the first establishment of the children of Israel as holy did not occur at Sinai. Rather, it occurred in Genesis when Yahweh God demanded that Abraham sacrifice his son Isaac. The words Kadash or Kadash mean sacred or set apart. The equivalent Greek word is Hagias, which explicitly means set apart for the purposes of a god. That's the definition from Thayer's Greek-English lexicon at Hagias. Hagias is Strong's Greek number 40. It describes something devoted to a god, according to Liddell and Scott. That was its use in classical Greek. Something devoted in that sense is not simply a person who loves God. That's not what it means. Today, we take the meanings of many terms too lightly. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the term devote as to commit by a solemn act or to give over or direct time, money, effort to a cause, enterprise, or activity. When you choose of your own volition to devote time or money to an organization, the time or money are no longer yours as they become the property of that organization. So when people are devoted to a God, properly, they become the property of that God. This was common in the ancient world, where men seeking the favor of a particular God customarily devoted gifts to the temple of that God. They would devote the gifts by entering the temple and laying the gifts on the altar. There are countless examples of this in, in the ancient Greeks, especially in the, the writings of the tragic poets, Euripides, Aeschylus. You devote an object to a god, you go into the temple, you present it to the priest, and the priest lays it on the altar, and it becomes the property of that god, the item you are devoting. Such offerings were often in the form of gold or silver, but sometimes men would offer slaves, or parents would devote their own children to the god at a temple. And the children became the property of the temple. In pagan temples, many of those children would end up as prostitutes, earning money for the temple, although sometimes they served the temple in other ways. This was also the significance of the sacrifice by Jephthah of his daughter, who for that reason had lamented her virginity. 
But perhaps sacrificing his daughter to the tabernacle of Yahweh, the daughter merely became one of the Nethanim. The Nethanim were the servants of the priests, first mentioned in the context within the context of the later temple of Yahweh. But the priests employed slaves to do certain tasks, and those slaves were called Nethanim. They were people whom were devoted to the temple or to the tabernacle over a period of time. And they became a class of slaves called the Nethanim. So they belonged to the temple or to the priests who operated the temple. The Israelites of the Old Covenant were not merely devoting some part of their lives or themselves to God. Rather, they themselves were devoted to God. So it is they themselves which became the property of God. The only people in all of history who were dedicated to the purposes of Yahweh at his command were those people in the loins of Isaac. And in that is the promise to Abraham that in Isaac shall thy seed be called Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, Paul of Tarsus defines seed in that same manner in Romans chapter 9. So the seed of the New Testament are the same seed of Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, and Paul of Tarsus defines that as the seed of the promise. Of these, seed in the loins of Isaac, were the children of Jacob, to whom the promises fell, who are the vessels of mercy of Romans chapter 9, and also the children of Esau, who are the vessels of destruction, in Paul's analogy in that chapter, that Esau forfeited his birthright because he was a race mixer and took wives of the daughters of Canaan is evident in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 7, which Paul also, Genesis chapter 27, I'm sorry, which Paul of Tarsus also explains in Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 16, where he says Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. And in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob is told that if he took a wife, and we might have to go into chapter 28 for this, that if he took a wife from the women of his own kinfolk, that the promises to Abraham would fall upon him. And so he did. But both brothers were in the loins of Isaac when Abraham placed Isaac on that altar, thereby dedicating him to Yahweh. No other man was placed on an altar and dedicated or devoted to Yahweh at Yahweh's command. So only the seed of Isaac is holy in that regard. But there were two purposes in the seed of Isaac, a different one for Jacob and another one for Esau. <coughs> so therefore, both brothers from that time forward, would be dedicated to the service of God, whether for good or for evil.
and the Edomites Jews are used to chastise us, and but ultimately they will be destroyed. Yes, and they're doing it to this very day, and they've done it all throughout history. Just like Doug the Edomite was willing to destroy the priests at the command of Saul. And Saul was wicked for doing that, but it was Doug the Edomite. None of the other men of Saul would do it, but Doug the Edomite was right there saying, I'll do it. So where we see the term saints in the New Testament or in the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7, which referred to a period of time following the fall of Rome. We cannot imagine that it describes anyone but the children of Israel. These are the people from whom, these are the people whom God demanded, Yahweh God demanded, were dedicated to him for his purposes. And nobody else could be included in this relationship because Yahweh never insisted that any other people ever be dedicated to him. It's what God determines that's righteous, not what man determines. So nobody else has a contextual standing in scripture and in history to assert any claim to be a saint except for the children of Israel. Where the apostle Peter informed his readers in chapter two of his first epistle, but ye are a chosen generation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, holy, hagios, set apart. When were they set apart? If Christ really told the apostles to go out and preach to everybody in the world, when were these people set apart to be a holy nation? Peter was writing to the children of Israel dispersed abroad. The 12 tribes scattered abroad that James also wrote to. A peculiar people. It doesn't say peoples, plural. It says people, singular. So they can't be Arabs, mixed peoples, mingled peoples. They're a people, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, who was in darkness but the children of Israel, Isaiah chapters 51 to 56, into his marvelous light. <coughs> he had used the term hagios in reference to a nation that was already devoted to God. And then he repeated a prophecy from Hosea chapters 1 and 2, which described what was said to become of those same children of Israel, which in times past were not a people. Well, Hosea wrote it, Hosea prophesied it in 700 BC or 750 BC, more accurately. Peter is speaking of it as being in the past in 60 AD perhaps 62, 64 AD, when he wrote that first epistle. So he's speaking of the same thing that Hosea prophesied, but Hosea prophesies it for the future, <clears throat> and P Peter is speaking of it as if it's in the past, which in times past were not a people. Speaking of those Israelites that Hosea prophesied, because this prophecy comes right from the end of Hosea chapter 1 and the beginning of Hosea chapter 2. And Peter is not using this prophecy of Hosea of the children of Israel. Peter's not applying it to people that are not of the children of Israel.
That would make Peter and Hosea both liars. That would make God a liar. Peter's not making God and Hosea liars. Peter is explaining the fulfillment of this prophecy of Hosea in those people who are in Western Anatolia, who were white Europeans and not Jews, which in times past, from Peter's perspective, were not a people as Hosea prophesied, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, as Hosea prophesied, but now have obtained mercy, referring to the mercy of Christ, extended to those same children of Israel that were taken into captivity 800 years before. Being a saint is not a matter of behavior. You cannot be a saint by being or doing good. Paul of Tarsus had written in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. Likewise, David wrote in the 143rd Psalm, addressing Yahweh God himself, that for in thy sight no living man be justified didn't matter whether you think you can keep the law or not. Therefore, it is impossible for a man to make himself a saint by his own behavior. It's also impossible for one man to look at another man and call him a saint by his behavior. We throw that term around vernacularly, but every man sins. Every man falls short of the glory of God. So behavior is not what makes us saints, ever. This we also see in Psalm 37, where it is apparent that men, even when they sin, are still considered to be saints. So David wrote, it's his psalm, David wrote in part, the steps of a good man. Now that word good was in italics. It's added to the text, right? So, so it should be stricken. All those words in italics, not all of them, but most of the words in italics in the King James Version of the Bible are suspect and may be stricken. The steps of a man, not a good man. The steps of a man are ordered by Yahweh and he delights in his way. So good man is implied because the man delights in the way of Yahweh, but it's not in the text. Though he fall, there we see such a man can fall. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For Yahweh upholds him with his hand. It should say just, for Yahweh upholds his hand. Words added to the text again, right? So even if a man sins or fails in some way, some other way, if he is one of the saints, one of the saints, then Yahweh God will uphold him. And this becomes apparent as we continue reading in the next verse, David saying, I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his seed is blessed. So even the children of a righteous man, when he fails, will nevertheless be supported by God, 
And for that reason, does David continue that same psalm in the very next verse. David continues by making a plea for men to depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For Yahweh loves judgment and forsakes not his saints, whether they're doing good or evil. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit land and dwell therein forever. The righteous and their seed are repelled even when they sin. And the wicked and their seed, their children, regardless of the behavior of the children, are ultimately cut off forever. The saints have no control over their destiny or that of their children, and the wicked have no control over their destiny or that of their children. Many years later, many years after David wrote, in Ezekiel chapter 21, on account of the sins of Judah, Yahweh spoke to the prophet and he said, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem and drop thy word toward the holy places and prophecy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, Yahweh, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath, and it shall not return any more. Meaning that, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians and that the Babylonians would conquer all the land from the south to the north. As a result of this very thing, the prophet Asaph later wrote in the 79th Psalm, Asaph was a prophet of the captivity. O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps, the destruction of the city by the Babylonians. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat under the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of thy saints unto the beasts of the earth, even though these were saints, these were good people, evidently, or no, they weren't good people. They were sinners. That's why they were punished, and they were punished in spite of the fact that they were saints, and they were sinners in spite of the fact that they were saints. They weren't saints because of their behavior. They were saints because they were the set-apart people. Their blood had they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us, to all those Arab mingled people. We see again that saints can sin in the 85th Psalm, which seems to have been written after the remnant had returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger towards us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? 
Show us mercy, O Yahweh, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what Yahweh God will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. But let them not turn again to folly. So we see that the saints are the children of Israel who had once turned to folly, but they were still his saints. In spite of that, the word saint refers to one of those people who were dedicated to Yahweh by Abraham while they were in the loins of Isaac, and nobody outside of that group could ever possibly be a saint in the eyes of God. The Pope can say whatever the hell he wants. The Pope doesn't really make saints. He's kidding himself. So we read of those who are saved in Revelation chapter 15. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. I guess that's Arab glass, right? And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Stand on a sea of glass. I guess that's after the Arabs are turned into glass by the fire. I'm, I'm kind of jesting, but it's kind of true also. The sea representing the world's massive peoples and the scriptures promising the children of Israel that he would tread upon the ashes of their enemies. So maybe I'm taking this digression too far. But them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. <clears throat> and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou art, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, and before thy judgments are made manifest. For thou only are holy. Well, the people are nevertheless called saints, and that word is hagios. If so, Yahweh, so if um, only the Pope can make saints, he's, he's only the king of a small amount of people, right? Well, well right. The king of saints. Absolutely. And if Yahweh God is the king of saints, then he's the saint, saint, he's the king over all of the children of Israel. As Christ had said, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wasn't joking. That's what he meant. That was the purpose of his ministry. And as Luke says in Luke chapter 1, to save us from our enemies. All of these Jews, all of these Arab peoples in the world today, all of these other races being brought in to punish the children of Israel, they are our enemies. And they were the enemies of the ancient children of Israel. They were competing Is, is there tribes. anything that all these Arab bastards seem to come from deserts and when you burn you know, sand, it turns to glass? Is there anything there that Dwayne describes a sea of glass? Well, uh, I really believe that that sea, it, it 
this is a picture of, of the ultimate victory of the saints over the enemies of God, that victory, of course, being in Christ. And the sea, in Revelation 20, there shall be no more sea. Does that mean we're not going to have oceans anymore? Of course not. Because water flows from the tree of life in the garden of God in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So we're still going to have oceans. There shall be no more sea. That refers to the, the, these masses of other people in the world. It's an allegory for the other races of the world. There shall be no more sea. Well, yeah, perhaps the lake of fire turns them all into glass, and we shall tread upon our enemies. And, and that's just the poetic allegorical pictures that I can derive from the, the text of the Revelation, from these images in the Revelation. You shall tread upon your enemies. They overcome the image of the beast. They are not race mixed. They are not beasts. So they've overcome the image of the beast, and therefore they shall tread upon their enemies. They stand on the sea of glass. That's the poetic imagery that I derive from this. For, for right or wrong, but I don't know how anybody could prove it wrong. I have other scriptures I, that, that support this, and, and I wrote a book about it. I, I'm hoping next year to expand on that greatly and to prove it all even further. So this song of the Lamb and, and this song of Moses and this image, this king of saints, Christ is the king of Israel. And he was described here as the king of saints. The term all nations in Greek has a definite article. And it should have been translated as all the nations in reference to definite nations and not just to any nations. In the Song of Moses, found in the closing chapters of Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, we read, and to, when I read this, I'm going to strike a word that was added by the King James translators. It's in italics. I'm just going to leave it out. It's the word with in verse 43. Does not belong there. In the Song of Moses, because this is the Song of Moses, according to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had a song for the children of Israel, which was an, a prophecy of what was going to happen to them in the future, what was going to become of them. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword, and, and Moses in his song is attributing these words to God because it's a song of Moses, but it's the word of God through Moses. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. This is the same thing we see of the gospel of Christ and the purpose of Christ in Luke chapter 1, and it's the same thing we see in the revelation of Christ upon his return in the revelation, which we've just read in part in Revelation chapter 15. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain, 
meaning the slain Israelites, and of the captives, meaning the Israelites taken into captivity, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, not with his people. That's bullshit. The King James Version had, the translators had no right to add that in and actually change the words of Moses. It's rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1 and the reason for the coming of Christ as stated by the father of John the Baptist and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So Moses described the nations whom Christ shall ultimately avenge as the nations of the 12 tribes of Israel, removing that added word in the King James Version of the Bible. The entire purpose of the return of the Christ will be to do that very thing as it is explained in the subsequent chapters of the Revelation. There are further parallels. <coughs> I'm sorry. There are further parallels. My voice keeps cracking. It's only been an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> there are further parallels between the Revelation and the description from Enoch found in the Epistle of Jude, where it speaks of the return of Christ for vengeance and the Song of Moses, where he speaks of the vengeance of the saints in Deuteronomy chapter 33, just after those verses that I had cited in Deuteronomy chapter 32, they're still part of the Song of Moses. While Jude describes the return to avenge himself and his people, the return of Christ to avenge himself and his people with ten thousands of his saints. And he said that Enoch wrote that. So they must have been the same Old Testament saints in the New Testament, with ten thousands of his saints. Moses described the coming of Yahweh in that same manner a few verses later in the opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 33. And he wrote, And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet, Every one shall receive of thy words. So in Revelation chapter 19, Christ returns for vengeance, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. The saints of Jude and the Revelation are the same saints of Moses, the set-apart children of Israel. And that is why in the Revelation, they are described as singing the song of Moses. And in that same place, the song of Moses is also the song of the Lamb, which is Christ. Christ and Moses, each singing the same song, their objectives are also the same. Yeah, you only have to look around us, look at our countries and, and see that the saints are being overrun. And that's why Christ has to return for to save us, right? Absolutely. Or the whole world will be Arab. The whole world will be mingled. The whole world will be bastards. The last time there was race mixing where the whole world was extinguished was Genesis chapter 6.
the last remnant was eight. <laughs> That's yeah, about exactly. All I... And um, just like the days of Noah, it all ties in, right? Absolutely. It all ties in every time. It all ties in. The whole Bible is telling the same story, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis chapter six, what was basically at a type for what's going to happen at the end of days. But the water that's a flood isn't going to be a flood. It's going to be the lake of fire that all of these bastards and, and Arab peoples, one way or another, are going to be cast into, and only the saints are going to be left. And that's same fire, those fiery trials of this world described in First Peter, back to that first epistle of Peter, I, I believe it's in chapter 1, and, and he speaks about this, I'm sorry, it's in chapter 4 maybe, where, where he speaks about the world being reserved for, for fire. Maybe I do have it confused. Maybe it is chapter chapter one. The fire being reserved, the fires of judgment. I'm sorry, maybe it's, no, it's not James chapter three, but it, it's, it's in one of those places. Let me try to find it. And if I don't, I remember how the Greek reads a lot better than I remember how the English of the King James is. So I don't always write the correct words when I'm searching for phrases, but Peter speaks about the salvation to be revealed in the last time. And he speaks about the world dissolving, the, the elements dissolving. And I'm sorry, that's in Second Peter chapter 3. And and Second Peter was written shortly after First Peter. It, if you read Second Peter and study it carefully, you'll find that Peter must have gotten responses back in a letter. And in Second Peter, he makes clarifications. He's writing to the same group of people, and he's answering concerns which we don't have a record of, but which they must have expressed. So he's making clarifications in Second Peter on things he had said in in First Peter. So. He speaks about the day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night. As it is in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And, and he says that the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And then in Revelation chapter 15, we have this picture of, of the saints standing on a sea of glass. And, and I wouldn't take all of this too literally. It's allegorical, and it's allegorical, and the truth is represented in the prophecies promising the children of Israel that they shall tread upon the ashes of their enemies. So these are all allegories. I wouldn't imagine that, that suddenly the world is going to burn up and somehow only white Christians are going to survive it. But yeah, that's the end picture. It may not play out in... in in, in descriptions as simplistic as that, I believe these are all allegories for a, a, a larger picture, for a bigger, more intricate story. But yeah, that's the end. That's what's going to, that's going to be the end result. And it may seem impossible now with uh, how powerful Babylon and, and the Jews are, but ultimately he's promising total victory over all of them. There'll just be ashes and nothing. 
Well, absolutely. And, and past empires seemed impossible to topple also, but they were all toppled. Rome, who would have imagined in, in the first, second, third centuries that Rome was going to fall the way it did? And, and uh, okay, if you read um, Procopius, Procopius was a Byzantine historian, and, and his descriptions of, of the, um, the fall of Rome, I believe I have it correctly, I believe it's Procopius, and, and the acts of, yes, it is Procopius, and, and the wars with Belisarius and, and the Byzantines against the Goths in Italy, and Procopius explains that at one point, Rome, the capital city of the empire, was reduced to only a few dozen inhabitants, the population of Rome. They were all gone. All the people fled the city. It was wiped out. And who could imagine that could have happened in the first century, at, at the time of um, Vespasian, or, or at the time of Augustus Caesar? Who would imagine that? But it happened. And it's going to happen again. And hopefully, New York and Washington, D.C. and London will be down to a couple of dozen inhabitants, maybe. <laughs> that's, that, that's what we have to look forward to. It's going to happen. Yeah, wherever whites go, they'll chase us, right? <laughs> they'll come for us. Well, well, right. But those people that inhabit those cities today, hardly any of them are really white. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, we'll, no um, we'll hope to finish point 42 next week. <laughs> I didn't expect it to go on so long, but that's fine. Yeah. 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 We can finally get to the devil and, and the Nephilim and giants and all that. Right. Right. And, and that's coming next. That that's the beginning of bastards without a doubt. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me again, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.